0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen.
1: Return of Ruddy's Shepherd Boys. Now we need a message to match the title. Well, that's good. That's what we're needing. It's funny because the title, I'm going to break. I'm going to spend the entire sermon just breaking down the title. I usually don't do that, but that's what we're going to do today. And when the Philistine, Goliath, looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. He disdained him. So, just so you know, the return of the ruddy shepherd boys, you're not going to be very popular. The event. When? Near 1020 BC, and I say near because no one knows the exact date of the great event, Location, ancient Judea in the small country of Israel, the exact spot. We actually know the exact spot, though we may not know the exact date. Very likely it was in the spring, because that is when kings went forth to battle. So very likely we're at the start of the Hebrew year, and it is springtime. The exact spot we know, it's called the Valley of Elah, amidst the craggy pasture lands of Judah. The scene. Well, the peaceful country of Israel has been invaded by the noisome Philistines. All the men of war have been called to battle. On one side of the valley stands the mighty Philistine army in battle position, ready to fight breathing threats and invectives. On the other side of the valley stand the Israelites, under the rulership of King Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, for those of you that are here this weekend, you're going to begin to recognize certain terms that I'm going to bring out in this. So Israel is being led by the first king. His name is Saul with swords at the ready, but hearts that are melting with fear. For the past 40 days they have stood this way, in position but without confidence of victory. They're Israel, and they're Israel's army. There's no question about which side they're on. They're not Philistines. They're Israel, but they have no confidence in victory. You see, they're under the rulership of the first king, and as long as you're under the rulership of the first king, you don't have confidence of victory. And Goliath will mock you. And for 40 days, this has been proven. 40 days in Scripture seems to be a measurement of proving the weakness of the first. It just is. And then what follows the 40th? 41. I know, that was quite the illustration of mathematical wonder right there, wasn't it? (laughs) After 40 years were completed, Moses runs into a burning bush on the first day of the 41st. After 40 years are completed, the first day of the 41st year, the waters of the Jordan River part, and the Israelites walk out behind Joshua, their new commander-in-chief, into the land of promise to take on Jericho. After 40 days, Jesus returns from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? 40. What's the deal with that number? 40. 40 days. You know when David arrives? On the 41st day. It's the new beginnings. It's the day of the second man. For the past 40 days, they have stood this way, in position but without confidence of victory. Every day, an emissary of the Philistines named Goliath, a -a 12-and-a-half-foot warrior giant, I already explained the cubit measurement, right? Some would say he's nine feet, but I like to go with the long cubit because that makes him huge. A -a 12-and-a-half-foot warrior giant strolls out into the open space in the valley between the two enemy camps and shouts a very specific challenge to the Israelites, Every day he moves closer, boldly attempting to provoke a soldier of Israel to rise up and fight him. For he says, send your best man and fight me. If I win, you all become our slaves. But if your man wins, we will all become your slaves. But this test of Israel's strongest and bravest men has only proven one thing over the past 40 days. And that is that there is no one in and amongst the mighty of Israel that has the moxie to face Goliath in hand-to-hand combat and let the fate of Israel rest upon his ability. So the mighty of Israel are in battle array. Forty days has proven only one thing. There is no one that has the guts and the courage and the boldness and the confidence to let the fate of Israel rest upon their shoulders. No one has a confidence that they can beat this giant. This giant's pretty impressive. He's massive. I personally wouldn't want to go head-to-head, toe-to-toe with them either, in my own strength. You see, they can only measure themselves by their own strength. That's all they have to work with. Though they are Israel, and though they are subservient to God Jehovah, they have lost touch with the fact that God Jehovah fights for them. They've lost touch because they're under the first ruler. And when you're under the first ruler, you can know about the truth you can have the law you can know things about god but you can't function with the strength that god supplies you need the second man for that king saul the warrior giant of israel doesn't that sound a little different than maybe anything you've ever thought king saul how big do you think he was maybe like six one i mean he's just all the pictures we've ever seen of him he just looks like a normal guy but little did you know he was head and shoulders above all israel This was the giant of Israel. They picked their best. They picked their strongest warrior to be their king. We'll follow that man. They measured him after the flesh. They measured him after the external. And God said, all right, we'll see how your best does for you. They wanted a king. They clamored for a king. They got a king, and they got a king that they wanted, a man that they could follow. They put their confidence in the flesh, And as a result, there they are standing 40 days being belittled by this giant. What is a giant named Goliath next to God Almighty? Nothing. However, what is a giant next to the flesh? A lot. See, because the flesh doesn't have the power. The flesh doesn't have the strength. What do you think all the soldiers in Israel are thinking? Come on, Saul. When are you going to stand up? What are you doing, buddy? You're our giant. You're our match. And yet, he's a coward. When the test came, he proved that he was weak. Many of us have run into that same test. We face the giant of fear and anxiety, and the giant of fear and anxiety boasts. He says, bring out your best, do your best, try and stop me. And guess what? You can't. The giant of lust comes strolling in. Hey, do your best. Yeah, you can't stop me. Hey, if you defeat me, I'll serve you. But if I defeat you, you become my slave for life. We need the second man, please. Hey, is there a second man? Is there another one who can rule over Israel because this guy stinks? Saul is not carrying his weight. He's all talk. He's a big guy, but he doesn't have any way of doing what he seems to, should be able to do, what he promises he can do for us. The flesh will fail you. The first will always fall short. King Saul, the warrior giant of Israel himself, is proved a coward and unwilling to step forward and defend his people and their dignity. The defining moment. Oh! See, when David and Goliath became a kid's story, we lost manhood in the church. This is a man's story. I love this story. And I unabashedly will declare that to you. And I would love it. I want my kids to love it. I want it to be a kid's story in that regard, but I want to have my kids grow up and recognize this really happened. This didn't happen on a flannel board. This didn't happen in a Veggie Tales. This happened in reality. The defining moment. On the 41st day, a ruddy shepherd boy, likely in his young teens, arrives in the camp of Israel to deliver bread and cheese to his older brothers and to check on the status of the war. Can't you just hear the background movie score? As he strolls in, 40 days of defeat, and suddenly, the better man shows up. He doesn't look too impressive, though. Who's going to think, oh, our Savior has come? When the Savior comes, you oftentimes don't recognize him. He didn't come in the form that we were expecting. We were expecting a giant Messiah. Instead, he comes. He's born of a little girl. He's raised in Nazareth, the armpit of Israel. No, that's not him. He doesn't look the part. There was nothing even in his own personal beauty. He didn't look like the leading man. He was probably still stout. He was a carpenter. He could probably carry a piece of lumber with the best of them, but he didn't look it. He didn't have that natural beauty in his countenance, but he had a different sort of beauty. He had love. He had a joy, but that wasn't what they were looking for. They were looking for a Saul. They were looking for someone who could match wits and match brawn with Goliath. Instead, in strode David, the little shepherd boy? Come on. So, this little shepherd boy overhears the boast from Goliath. This ruddy shepherd boy's response changes the course of a nation and sets a pattern for the construct of great manhood throughout the course of history. I'm gonna read that again. He overhears the boast from Goliath. Do you hear it? Do you hear the boast of Goliath in the church today, in our culture today? Give up, man. I've got you cornered. I've proven your weakness. You can't stop me. Lost rules all the men of Christianity today. Good luck stopping Lost. They're mocking us. These spiritual powers are mocking the men of God today. Do you hear it? Do you hear the mocking voice of Goliath? What's the response of a man? Well, This ruddy shepherd boy's response changes the course of a nation and sets a pattern for the construct of great manhood throughout the course of history. What was his response? Well, we're going to look into that a little, because that's the ruddy shepherd boy, or we could say it this way, the return of the ruddy shepherd boy. The return of ruddy shepherd boys. So let's look at our three key words here, ruddy, shepherd, and boys. Do you know that all three of these words are actually negative words? In the Hebrew mindset, these words are actually not very positive. So let's look at them. Ruddy means red or the color of earth. It means earthiness. It's actually the color, brace yourselves for this one, of the firstborn. I know that sounds strange, but that's what Adam's name means. So Adam is red. And so I'll go into this in just a second. Shepherd, that's the lowliest occupation. If you're the shepherd, you're at the lowest end of the totem pole, you are the bottom. And so that's shepherd. Well, how about boys? Well, in a world full of men, to be a boy is not actually the top end, it's the bottom. A boy would mean a man in a state of immaturity and unreadiness, it's not a compliment. Just be called a boy, hey, we got a boy here delivering bread and cheese, you're not thinking, oh, there's our savior. (laughs) You see, all three of these words in accordance with the natural realm, actually have a negative connotation to it. Isn't that interesting? And here we are saying the return of ruddy shepherd boys. That's what we need. Well, the world isn't thinking that's what we need, but God knows that's what we need. However, we need to begin to think like God because God looks at all three of these things very different than we do, and that's what this message is about. A study of ruddy. I just had to do that. That just sounded fun. A study of ruddy. Now, some of you know what ruddy is because you heard David described as ruddy, so you looked it up in your concordance and figured out, what is ruddy? Because it's not a typical word that we use, but oftentimes someone with red hair and, and more of a fair skin can be called ruddy, a ruddy complexion. David, you know, in the descriptions was of a beautiful countenance or a fair countenance, which is always awkward for us as men to like all right let's get past that so like when I was reading Scottish Chiefs it was describing Sir William Wallace it's always talking about his blonde flowing locks of hair that all the women were like fainting over and it's like all right could we skip the blonde locks of hair I don't want to hear about that a study of a ruddy all right so on the left you're gonna see a concordance number and H means it's in the Hebrew and so if it was in Greek it would be a G in front of the number so these are all Hebrew words and so if you ever want, if you want to follow up on this out of the notes, you, you definitely can. You're going to notice that these are all in a string. All of these are very, very similar words, and they come from the same root. The root for almost all of them is Strong's H119, okay, which is a verb. And then Strong's H120, those two are very similar, but one's a verb and one's a noun. Okay, so we have the word Adam, which means to be red or ruddy. You're going to recognize that. Just A-D-A-M is a very familiar word to all of us. We pronounce it a little different in the English, and we'd say Adam. And so there's actually a noun that is a man. you know that the word for Adam, the name Adam, and the word man are the same? You could say he's an Adam, but that wouldn't mean his name is Adam. That means he's just a man. And so the name man actually comes from the word red or ruddy. That's strange. What a, what a bizarre basis. Why? Well, that's because he's created out of the earth. And so, as a result, he's earthy or he's red or he's ruddy, depending on how you want to say it. So, H 120, the noun is Adam, which is a man or of the dust or of the red earth. How was man formed? He was formed of the dust. He was formed of the red earth. We, we know that, but most of us have never actually looked into it and said, huh, that's actually where the word man comes from? A woman is not of the red earth. She's of the side of a man, of, of a man's rib. Woman, she's of a man. We are of the dirt as men. They're of a man. They're a, wo-man. They're a womb man They're a womb-man. They're a out of a man's womb. Isn't that strange? How is the new creation, the bride of Christ, created out of the side of Christ, out of the womb of Christ, the blood of Christ, we were, we were a new creation in his blood. Isn't that amazing, just to look at that? All right, so H120 is the word that most of us know, which is the proper name for the first man, named Adam. Adam, the first man, are created of the dust of the red earth, and H122 is an adjective, a description, Adom, which means red and ruddy, the color of dust, the color of earth. Oh, that's, that's red, or that's ruddy. That's like the color of dirt. And so then we have a proper masculine noun, which for those of you that have studied first and seconds in scripture, like the firstborn being Cain and the second one being Abel, the firstborn being Ishmael, the second one being Isaac, the firstborn being Esau, and the second one being Jacob, the first one being Saul, the second king being David, first and second, the old covenant, the new covenant, the first Adam, the last Adam, well, you've studied Esau then. You studied flesh, spirit. Firstborn is symbolic of flesh. It's earthy, it's of the earth, it's red. The second is of heaven. And I'll read that scripture. It's actually in Corinthians. And so look at H. 123. Edom. That's actually the name given to Esau, which means Edom, otherwise known as Esau. Red, the firstborn of the old nature, bearing the nature of the earth. You remember Esau, he came out hairy all over in red. And so they named him Esau, which means hairy. But then he sold his birthright for a bowl of red pottage, and he was called Edom. He was called Red. It's the same name as Adam, just a little different. Isn't that interesting? That's the old man's behavior. He's of Adam. He's red like Adam. Isn't that interesting? That's actually the link. So then we have a feminine noun, which is adama, earth, ground, or land. So when it talks about earth or ground in scripture, or land, it's typically gonna use earth. adama. it's the red earth. And then you have the adjective that is describing David, which is admoni, red, he was ruddy, like the color of dust or like the red earth. So that doesn't sound like a positive, does it? He's the second man, but he's red? Like Adam and Esau? Oh, no! We don't like that. We definitely don't want the return of that. Ruddy. Is it a good word or a bad word? Let's describe the bad side to ruddy. It's of the earth. It's earthy. It's of this world. It's worldly. It's not of heaven. It bears the same color, the same hue of the cursed ground from which it was fashioned. It's the color of the first man, the old man, a.k.a. the flesh, the carnal the Adam condition. That's red. We don't, we don't want to be red. We were, we were red our entire life. That's why we need to be born again. But wh- what color do you become when you're born again? That's what's funny about this message. What do you clothe then when you're born again? Blood. What color is blood? Well, that's the classic understanding. Isn't it interesting that the color to go with the first man and the color to go with the second man, the last Adam, is the same? So what color is David? Is he the first man or the second man? Adam, and the Lord formed Adam, or man, of the dust of the Adama, earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam, or man, became a living being. So you probably had that figured out, but I read it for you anyways. Esau, he's again the first. And the first came out, so Esau and Jacob are being born, they're twins, but who comes out first? Esau. And the first came out, Admoni, red and ruddy, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same Adom pottage, for I am faint. He craved the things of the earth. He craved his instinct or his appetite was for red, was for that which is of the earth. And as a result, he traded it out for that which was of heaven. That's why he's like Adam. For an apple or a fruit or a plum or a fig, whatever that fruit was, he traded out his life with God. So he's Edom. He's Adam. He's of this earth. He's red. So his name is called... With that same Adam pottage, for I am faint, therefore was his name called Edom, which means red, like Adam, bearing the nature of the firstborn. So I know that I've done a pretty good sales pitch on how red is a bad color and how ruddy is a bad word. However, I've held you in, in that one place of tension to say, well, there has to be a good side to it, though. And there is. So the good side to ruddy, it's the color of life. So yes, I know it's the color of earth and that which is cursed, but it's also the color of life. It's the symbol of the heart, of blood, energy, and zeal. So when your face flushes red, what does that mean? It's the passion. It's the flow of blood. It's either anger or zeal or excitement. What is David described as? When David's older brother, the firstborn of Jesse's sons, is rejected as being the king, God says something, very specific. You see, everyone is evaluating according to the externals. They're looking at the outside. They're looking at the flesh. But I don't judge that way. I judge according to the heart. And David is a man after God's own red heart. David is a different sort of red. He's the red of the heart, not the red of the earth. It's the color of the heavenly clothing, the robe of righteousness, Red is the color of blood. It's the color of the second man, the one clothed in scarlet, covered in blood as he went to battle against the giant, the spirit, the heavenly, the last Adam. So remember, David stands against Goliath, and what is he described as? Ruddy. And he was despised. When Jesus stood against Goliath, what color was he? He was red. What was he covered with? Blood not that amazing? Jesus came to face Goliath ruddy. The last Adam. So we have the first Adam, which is of the earth. But then, strangely, Jesus is called the last Adam. He's the last one who's shaped after the earth. But then he houses and he is the man that Adam wasn't. If you go back to Adam and Eve, and you sort of ask the question, what should Adam have done? And what if Adam had made a different decision? How would the course of history have changed? Because Jesus is called the last Adam. Why does God even want to use that term? Let's get rid of Adam. We don't even want to talk about Adam. Adam failed. Adam is a man. And God chose a man to be a priest. And a priest is what is necessary to mediate on the part of men to God. Priest. Priest. You know that you need a priest? I'm not saying you need an earthly priest like in some type of church structure. Your priest is Jesus Christ. But you need an Adam. You need a priest who is perfect and pure and righteous with the law. Eve was duped and she fell for the serpent's lie and she ate of the fruit. And then it says she turned and gave it to her husband. What if Adam had functioned as he ought to function? What was Adam's job? He was the priest of Eden. He was the one who was the protector of his wife. He was the one entrusted with the law. Do you know that the law was spoken to Adam? It wasn't necessarily spoken to Eve. If you read it, that's exactly what it was. The law was entrusted to him, and he was the priest who was supposed to dispense that unto his bride. And so in that situation, could you imagine Eve turns with the fruit, of the, the juice of the fruit streaming down her chin, and she turns to Adam and says, oh, it's good. What if he handles it differently? and goes, Eve, you've eaten of the fruit. Yeah, and it's good. You should try it. Eve, that's against the law of God. He says, the day in which you do, you will die. And she goes, I don't feel dead. I feel fine. You should try it. Eve, Eve. And where does he go? He goes to God. As a priest, he intercedes. and He says, God, my wife. My wife has eaten the fruit. I know what your law states. And I know that you have to maintain your law. Is there any way? Is there any, any solution? He says, I need blood. Death must follow. Take me. Take me. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the man that does what the first Adam was supposed to do. He's the priest. So the last Adam, it's not marked by the ruddiness of this earth. It doesn't behave as this earth. It's not self-centered. It's not on its belly, and its appetite doesn't control it. It's of heaven. It's upright. It's a priest of God. It behaves as a man ought to behave. So it's not marked by the ruddiness of this earth, but by the ruddiness of heaven's life. 1 Corinthians so all that I've explained so far you're going to begin to realize this is actually what Paul teaches. Paul teaches first and second. He teaches that you must be born again. He teaches that your father actually is an old man, that Adam, and you too are of the earth. You are on your belly and your appetite controls you. It's called the flesh. It's called carnality. But you must be born again. And you must be grafted into a new lineage. Instead of being of the lineage of Adam, who is of the earth, you must be of the lineage of Jesus, who is of heaven. You must be of the last Adam, not the first. If you're of the first Adam, you die, and you experience the consequence and the penalty of the first Adam. But if you are of the last Adam, you receive his reward. You are treated in the heavenly realms the way he is treated. His righteousness is bequeathed to you. His holiness is given to you. His grace is made available to you. So there is a natural body, that's what we're all walking around in, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, which is speaking of Jesus, was made a quickening spirit or a life-giving spirit. Quickening or to quicken means to give life to something. Jesus, the last Adam, was made a life-giver. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, which came first. The natural came first. The earthy came first. Adam, the one of earth, came first. The flesh always comes first. So howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. What comes second? The spirit. What comes second? The last Adam, Jesus. What comes second? The new covenant. What comes second? Abel. Isaac, Jacob, or Israel. What comes second? David. This is how it works. The spiritual follows. The first man is of the earth, earthy, red. The second man is the Lord from heaven, red. Clothed in scarlet, offering the offering of his own life. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. In other words, if you're earthy, if you're still in the old man, if you're still functioning according to your old life, guess what? You're going to function as an earthy man would. It's not that hard to use your imagination of what that behavior is. You see, men outside of Jesus all behave the same way. And that's why women have a tendency to categorize us and say, men. Well, it's actually, they're pretty accurate. Men. That's the way they behave, but that's an earthy man. That's an unredeemed, unreborn. That's an old creation. But a new man, one recreated in the blood of Jesus, is red and ruddy, but it's not the same. It's a different red. It's a heart red. It's a life red. It's no longer the red of this earth. So the first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord of heaven, Lord from heaven, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Which means the new man behaves the way the heavenly man would. So we've been talking about all weekend. I know it's impossible, but it's not up to you. You have been trained in a version of living that is earthy. And you're trying to have the best rendition of earthy living. You try and have a moral version of earthy living. You try and have some kind of self-control to your earthiness. But your earthiness is your whole problem. You're still associated in the lineage with the old man. And you must die to that lineage. You must break that covenant through death. That's the only way covenant is broken, through death. But you can't do it. So you need death. Whose death do you need? When you are in Christ, his death becomes your death. And it severs the covenant that you have with that old lineage. It severs your connection with that old man. It severs that connection that you have with the law of sin and death. You're no longer under it. You're under a new law, a higher law. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And now your father is God Almighty, and you're adopted. He doesn't leave you an orphan. You lose your previous father, the old man, Adam. He doesn't leave you floating around. He says, I want you. And now you're legally adopted, and he becomes your father. It's a pretty amazing scenario. So we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Ruddy of heart. The sort of red that is despised on this red earthen planet. It's interesting. If you are red like the earth, you're loved on the earth. But if you're red like heaven, you're hated on this earth. And so the return of ruddy shepherd boys, those that are despised, it's the sort of red that this earth wants to kill. They don't want that sort of red around because it shows them only one thing, and that is that they're still of the old nature. To see the new nature is very convicting because it is an indictment to everyone who still remains old. And it says, and you too must come and die that you might live. 1 Samuel 16, and it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab or Eliab. So, this is Samuel coming to Bethlehem. He's been commissioned by God to come in and anoint the next king. Saul is still seated on his throne. In the midst of this, there is a coup attempt on Israel to literally anoint another king while, it, while Saul is still king of Israel. Uh huh. The old man was ruling down here. And Jesus was anointed king in the midst of hostile territory. However, who's going to recognize him as king? He's king, all right. David was king, all right. But Israel didn't recognize him. His mighties recognized him. But it's those that are willing to separate from their allegiance to Saul and leave it all behind and come and identify with their rightful king. So Eliab has stood before the prophet Samuel And he's the firstborn. I put that in parentheses for you, by the way. He's the first. And said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks for a ruddiness of heart. The Lord is looking at something different, not a ruddiness of physical stature. Wow, that man was crafted well out of the dust. No, he looks for a man whose heart has been crafted well by the Spirit of God. This man is ready. So the Lord looks on the heart, and he sent and brought David in. Now, there's a whole story in between. Remember, he goes through seven sons, and and Samuel's like, he's not here. And so then Samuel's famous question, are there any more? Could you imagine what Jesse and his sons were feeling? They're looking around going, no way. No way. Not David. Not David. Your younger brother, the least in all of Jesse's family. Jesse's family is not anything that special either. It's in a little diddly squat town known as Bethlehem. And the eighth son, the one who is the youngest, gets stuck with the sheep. It's the lowliest position. And guess who's out with the sheep? Well, I mean, we got the guy tending the sheep, but I mean, you wouldn't want him. Bring him to me. It's the most unlikely, isn't it? Jesus didn't look the part. David never looked the part. Throughout his whole campaign of becoming king, he never looked the part. And he sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy. Isn't that an interesting statement? Well, Eliab was ruddy too. But he was ruddy of stature. He proved that he was shaped well out of the earth. But now suddenly God makes mention of the fact that, and he was ruddy. But what sort of ruddy? And with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So here we are back to 1 Samuel 17. And when the Philistine, Goliath, looked about and saw David, this is the one that is taking on Goliath. He looks out, and what does he see? He sees David, and what is the first instinct of those that are fashioned well out of the earth? The first instinct of those that are fashioned well out of the earth. I mean, can you think of anything that's more ruddy than Goliath? I mean, he's the ultimate picture of what the earth can produce, what the natural law can do. He dominated in the natural realm, and he despised this little one, this little boy, this shepherd boy. He disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. Well, David could have said, you're ruddy too. What's the problem with being ruddy? I don't like your look, boy. I don't like this red that you're carrying around. It's not not the right sort of red. Ruddy. You see, the natural realm and the flesh, those that are born of the earth, hate that which is born of the Spirit. The Scriptures say they're at enmity one with the other. They can't get along, they can't coexist. So God is of spirit. How do you think he's gonna relate to you if you're trying to lug around the old man in relationship to him? He has no relationship with it, and guess what? Your old man doesn't like him. So as a result, unless your old man dies, unless your old man is dealt with, you're gonna have a very serious problem in dealing with your God. But Jesus has provided the avenue. Now I know death doesn't sound like the ultimate avenue for any of us, we're like, I need to die? Yeah, you do. You need to die to your old life. You need to forsake it. You need to relinquish controls of your existence. Right now, you have a firm grip on the steering wheel of your life. And God says, let it go. I need that seat. I don't know where he sticks us in the car. Some of us, I've heard some people say he sticks us in the trunk. But he needs to be at the helm. And then you, whether you're a backseat driver in the trunk, I'm not exactly sure where we could actually rightly describe it. Like, hey, where are you going with my life? Hey, where are you taking me? No, we learn to sit back and trust, and that's the life of faith. He knows what he's doing. Someone could come in and knock on the window of your car and say, where's he taking you? I don't know, but it's gonna be great. (laughs) You see, you've turned over the helm of your life, and as a result, the old life, the old nature, the old ruddiness is gone, but you're still Ruddy. You still bear the countenance of heaven, and it's a beautiful countenance. The world just doesn't find it very attractive. The Bible will call it attractive, but Goliath isn't going to be doing you any favors. He's not going to be complimenting you. What a beautiful boy. What a beautiful young boy. No, no, that's not what you hear. The first man, the old man. Of this earth, earthy, clay red. So instead of heart red, we're gonna say clay red. It's earthy red. And bearing the look and behavior of the earth and realm, the product of the first creation out of the red earth. So key words here, the product of the first creation. There was a creation, Adam, was the chief picture of what God was doing. He bore his image, but he disobeyed. And when he disobeyed, he lost the heavenly ruddiness. And he only bore the ruddiness of this earth. And as a result, he no longer is the picture of what God intends a man to be. The picture was lost. It was lost, and men lost the vision. They lost the clear understanding of how a man ought to live. But then Jesus came, and Jesus set the whole situation right. He said, you see this ruddy thing, this thing born out of the dust? This is how it's supposed to function. But it must have ruddiness of heart inside of this whole shell to make it work. So, the second Adam, Jesus, is of heaven. He's heavenly, he's blood red, and bearing the look and behavior of the holy heavenly kingdom, the bringer of the new creation in his blood. Adam is the product of the first creation. David, I, boy, I'm having trouble here. Jesus is the one who is the bringer of the new creation in his very ruddiness, his ruddiness of blood. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And he, Jesus, all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, and he, Jesus, was clothed. What was he clothed with when he went to battle? On the cross, I already went through that. He was red. But in the end, when he comes to bring judgment in return, listen to this, And he, Jesus, was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. When he returns, he's going to be ruddy. But it's a different sort of ruddiness. And the world will despise him. And guess what? He despises the world. They're at enmity with each other. Red against red. But the blood red always wins. Heavenly ruddy. Jars of earth and clay that bear the heart of God inside but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. How could we say this? We have this treasure of Jesus Christ, this is Christianity. Jesus Christ lives, what did he choose to live in? Ruddy vessels, earthen vessels. He's not against the vessel. He's against the fact that the heart, the blood red heart has been removed. The life, the zest, the zeal of God is, has departed. But he, at the cross, did you know that he makes us new? but we still have old bodies, we still have our earthen red bodies. And yet, we have this treasure known as God Almighty. The red of God enters in and lives within us and gives us a new heart, a heart of softness, tenderness, towards the things of heaven. So we have this, this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Always carrying about in the body, these earthen vessels, the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death is working in us, but life in you. Well, that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? So we have this great treasure known as Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, the red heart of God in us. But what does he stick it in? He sticks it in these earthen vessels. And these earthen vessels are like, they're cracking because this world despises us. They despise what's in us. And so what do they come against? Our earthen vessel. But what happens when our earthen vessel begins to break? What happens when they beat our earthen vessel? What comes out? It's like, oops, God just came out. You see, when they hit us, that's God's secret remedy for them. You strike me, and you're going to get what's inside of me the red heart will come out. The life of God is what you'll see. This is Christianity. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that when these vessels which are despised, not because they're earthen are they despised, but because of what's inside of them. It's the treasure of God that's inside of them and Goliath hates it. So Goliath comes after it. But when he tries, what happens? The life of God comes out and the enemy is like, what do I do with this then? He wants to kill us, but when he kills us, our blood is the seed of the church. He can't stop us. Do your best to my earth and vessel. When you try and stop my earth and vessel, the life of God progresses in this earth. Uh Uh-huh. That's why we're called unstoppable. The enemy can't do it. His best decision is to kill us. But when he kills us, it only gets worse for him. When he beats us, out comes the life. Out of our innermost flows rivers of living water. When did the life of Jesus come out? They put a spear in his side. When will the life of Jesus come out of you? When they pierce your side. And when they pierce your side, what comes out? Life, love. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Out comes something that is otherworldly and is not of this earth. It is not of the red clay. It is of heaven. But it's held in an earthen clay, and that's God's design. He knows what he's doing. I know many of us have questioned him on these points. Like, why are you doing this? Give me a new body, an immortal body. They come up and try and torture me, and they bounce off. That sounds better. No, I put this treasure in an earthen vessel, and that's the way I want to disseminate my power, my life, and my truth, and my love. It's a good plan, but we have to be men to receive such a plan. Wearing the second man. Don't wear the first man. Paul says, put off the old man and his deeds, but put on Christ. We're supposed to wear the second man. Putting off the old man and his deeds, putting on the new man. So let's get back to our title, The Return of Ruddy Shepherd Boys. So I have a hunch ruddy now has been reestablished and the balance has come back to it. You see, we're not looking for the earthen, the Adam-like shepherd boys. We're looking for the ruddiness of hearts. We're looking for those that bear the nature of Jesus Christ. So Ruddy Shepherd Boys. Ruddy, so here's our our original list. Remember where I was going through and the, the first three were negative descriptions? Now we're going to, when we replace it out, I'll underline it. So now this is our renewed, heaven-minded definition for ruddy. The the twice-born. Those clothed in blood, the men of life, men with a fiery heart after God, men of the fellowship of the burning heart. Yeah, we need that on earth. Where's the ruddiness in the church of Jesus Christ? Bring back the ruddy men! Okay, so now let's get to the next one. Shepherd. That's the lowliest occupation Well, who wants that job? Shepherds, the lowly and most miserable occupation. And as a man, are you ready for this? You're built for the lowliest and most miserable occupation. But you don't look at it as the most lowly and miserable occupation. You say, could I be a shepherd? You know what being a pastor is? You know what the word pastor even means? Shepherd. Well, who in their right mind wants to go to school to be a pastor? It's a good question, a man of God. You see, men of God don't look at it as the lowliest, most miserable occupation. That's not how I look at it. I love my job. You see, it's how you see it. If you look at it from the lens of this earth, from the earthen realm, from the Adam lens, you'll say, I don't want to touch that. No way. But if you look at it from the heavenly realm, you say, please, God, choose me. Please. So here's Smith's Bible Dictionary on shepherding. In Israel, the shepherd held a subordinate position. That means lowly, under. The office of the eastern shepherd was attended with much hardship and even danger. He was exposed to the extremes of heat and cold. His food frequently consisted of the precarious supplies afforded by nature, such as, listen to this, locust and wild honey. He had to encounter the attacks of wild beasts, occasionally of the larger species, such as lions, panthers, and bears. Nor was he free from the risk of robbers or predator hordes. Yeah, sign me up. Who wants to do that? You see, it's not like you're just standing in a field and you know predators are coming after you. You have a job. There's something that you're doing. You've been entrusted something, and that's what's missing in this definition. You see, a shepherd is one who is given a trust, and he's given a trust over something very precious, sheep, and he will gladly serve those sheep. You know that a good shepherd loves his sheep? He's not doing it out of duty. That's the hireling in Scripture. So there's a difference between a shepherd and a hireling. A hireling, you know, has to fill in for a shepherd one day. He says, hey, I'll pay you 100 bucks to take care of my sheep today. The guy goes, $100? All right. And he comes in, but when the wild beast comes after his sheep, he doesn't love those sheep. He doesn't care about those sheep, so he's not going to lay down his life for those sheep. That's not a good shepherd. David was a good shepherd. Who else is a good shepherd? Jesus. Who else is supposed to be a good shepherd? We are. You see, a shepherd in the kingdom of heaven is literally one of the highest titles. David bore it, and Jesus bore it. It's the description of the occupation of the twice-born. We're all supposed to be shepherds, every single one of us. We are entrusted with a range, whether that's at first just our own heart and mind, whether it's our marriage, whether it's our children, whether it's our church. And even women are supposed to be shepherdly because there's things that we are given, whether we're male or female, to care for and to lay down our life for. Every single one of us is to bear the ruddiness and the shepherdly nature of Jesus Christ. Shepherding, we'll just call it very simply, the occupation of the second man. The first man despises it. The first man mocks it. It's the lowest position in Jesse's family. Who gets the shepherding position? The youngest, because the youngest is the lowliest, and the lowliest position is the shepherding. So each son passes it along. When a new son is born, he finally gets to that age. All right, you're the shepherd now. They don't want that job. They want to get out of that job. There's no dignity in being a shepherd. And yet we as Christians move in the opposite direction. Uh, is there a shepherd opening here? We're candidating to be shepherds. That's what we do as Christians. We candidate to lay down our life, to see people rescued from their sin. I sign up. Sign me up, God. Send me to the fields. And she again bare his brother Abel. This is right back in the beginning of Genesis. And Eve has a son. But it's a second son. Now, it doesn't say that here, but it says, and she again bare, which means it's the second. Abel was the second son. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. The occupation of the second. Isn't that interesting? Abel was a shepherd? Yeah, and he had the offering that God approved. You see, God approves the offering of the second. A sheep, a lamb without blemish. It's the second offering. It's the offering of the second that God receives. The offering of Cain is not pleasing to God. You can offer your flesh You can offer your good deeds. You can offer your energies and discipline. It cannot satisfy God. It's only the offering of the second that satisfies God. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Where's he working? In the earth. Isn't that fascinating? Shepherding, despicable to those that are earthen, ruddy. So if you're earthen in your ruddiness, if you're red according to the earth, did you know that you find shepherds despicable? And that's actually throughout Scripture, too. Listen to in Genesis. Remember, Dave, or Joseph is in Egypt, and he wants to bring his father and his brothers in, and all their family, all their cattle, all their sheep and livestock. And listen to this encounter. Remember, Egypt is a symbol of the world. So if anyone's going to think like the earth, it's going to be Egypt. So follow this. That you shall say, so this is he's counseling them in what they need to say to the Egyptians. That you shall say, thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Don't tell them you're a shepherd. Your trade is cattle. Just say it that way. Don't tell them you're a shepherd because a shepherd is an abomination to those born of this earth. It's an abomination. It's a pretty strong word, by the way. And what do we say as Christians? I wanna be the shepherd. I want to be like the shepherd. Jesus allows himself to be called a shepherd. Don't the people that are writing scripture understand that you're not supposed to do that? That's a lowly position. David gladly bears the title shepherd. You never hear him trying to excuse himself. That. I'm sorry, I was an eighth son. I, I didn't have any choice, but I, am, I was always higher than that position. And you see that now because I'm king. No, he's a shepherd king. He never gave up his shepherdliness. When he was a king, he was a shepherd king. And that's the same with you. You may be the head of a household, but you better be a shepherd as the head of that household. You may have children, but you better be a shepherd towards those children and not a king only towards those children. You may have a flock of sheep in the church, but you must not be a king towards them. Though you must be strong and though you must be firm in your leadership, you also must be a shepherd. Always a shepherd. Though you go up that line and God raises you up in this generation to have influence, you must never lose the red heart of the shepherd. Shepherding. The expression of the ruddy nature of heaven. A shepherd. Listen to this list and you will see the behavior of Jesus Christ. He's a protector. He's a life preserver. He's a patriot. Patriot is a term we didn't get to work out this this weekend. But it comes from two base words, uh, patria and pater, father and fatherland. And what a patriot is, is it's the father instinct for the territory of the father. So in our life, the father's business, you know what he cares about? Orphans, widows. Do we have a father instinct for the fatherland? That's his territory. That's what he purchased with his blood. And so we have a father instinct for it. A patriot is one who's gladly willing to lay down his life to see the father's business progress, to see his interests preserved. The patriot, he's gentle toward the sheep, but fierce toward the wolf. He's ever watchful. He's one who lays down his life that his sheep might live. Now, that's maybe obvious, but I'm saying that's a shepherd. And every single one of us in here esteems that. That's what we esteem. That's what we love about Jesus What we love about Jesus is that he's the good shepherd that laid down his life. And yet, when it comes to us, do you know that by following him, you're going to be despised? Doesn't that sound like if you were this, you would be noble in this earth? If you were the earthen form of this, like one of those military personnel that goes in and risks his life and dies, you get a medal, everyone cheers you on. But I'm talking about someone who for the sake of the glory of God and the gospel, lays down their life. That's not appreciated the same way. And that's what you're called to. This is for Jesus, not for an earthly badge or medal. And when you do it for Jesus, the world doesn't like it. The return of ruddy shepherd boys. So we have one word left. So here's our definition so far. Ruddy, the twice-born, those clothed in blood, the men of life, men with a fiery heart after God, men of the fellowship of the burning heart, now shepherd. Men built to protect, preserve, and spend their life for that which is under their care. We need a return of that. What would the church of Jesus Christ look like if we had a return of ruddy shepherds? Now, isn't it funny because you know what word is next? Boys? Excuse me, isn't this a men's conference? Could you imagine next year we call it a boys' conference? (laughs) I don't know how to describe this, but it's sort of like I am a father but I'm not quite a father like he is a father. God's making me a man, but compared to him, I'm not quite there, he's the man. So don't start walking around going, I'm the man. No, no, very dangerous, he's the man. And so it's sort of hard to describe this, but as you go through this, you'll understand. In scripture it's called a novice. We're not supposed to give a novice position in the church prematurely, someone who's unready Because if you do, you have all sorts of woes and problems. But the Church of Jesus Christ today is famous for putting novices in position of leadership. And yet, even though I'm going to talk about a novice, I also want to talk about an attitude. Because a boy, by the typical definition, would be a man in a state of immaturity and unreadiness. That would be a novice. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not like we kick it in the teeth and say, oh, that's disgusting. However, we do not give it a position. However, we're going to rephrase the concept of boy because the concept is used in two different ways in Scripture, just like Ruddy and just like Shepherd, There's an earthen mentality towards it, and there's a heavenly mentality towards it. Boys, are we supposed to stay young or grow up? You know that there's two things, two seeming contradictions in Scripture where God says, unless you become like little children, and then he says, hey, guys, I wanted you to grow up to be men. It's Like, what? Make up your mind, God. I can't stay young and grow old at the same time. Or can you? Do you remember what I said about the earthen vessel? You see, you're still red of this earth. You still are in this body. But your old man is crucified. And so that which was the problem with this red body is dealt with. And now you have the red heart that is put inside of you, and all is made right. The same with a boy. And the same with the concept of growing... First of all, being young and yet maturing. It's both and that is true. Do you know that you're supposed to grow up but never lose your boyish faith? You're supposed to function in the kingdom of God with a childlike wonder to say, my God can do it. The way a little child thinks about God is the way you're supposed to think about God. However, you're supposed to mature unto full stature of masculinity. It doesn't mean you think like a child or reason like a child. You're not foolish, You're mature and wise, but you're wise with a child boyish faith. Eyes wide saying, watch what my God will do. Never lose that. So I gave away probably too much, unfortunately, already, but are we supposed to stay young or grow up? Matthew 18, and Jesus called a little child unto him, set him in the midst of them, and said, verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as a little child, or for many of us, become as a little boy, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the entry. This is how you enter. You get up on the lap of the master horseman. You can't ride that wild stallion. Only he can. So he says, here's the secret. Get up in my lap. As a man, whoa, that's hard. But how about your little son? How does your little son respond to that if you're up on the stallion and you say, take my hand, little one. All right, come up and sit in daddy's lap. It's a privilege. You could sit in daddy's lap. You better become like a little boy. How about to get to the other side? As a man with that wall, ivory wall that stretches 10, millions up, 10 million miles up into the air, 10 million miles into the ground, 10 million miles this way, 10 million miles this way, and God says, you have to get on the other side. And a little child immediately turns to Papa and says, how do we do it? He says, you see that hole? Just get down and slide through. A man has trouble with that. There's mud down there. I'm not gonna let anyone see me get down on my face. I have dignity. I'm a man. A little boy just goes, okay and immediately is over there. Never lose that boyishness. Never lose the simplicity of coming to the word of God and saying, he said it, that's good for me. However, it says in Ephesians 4, till we all come in the unity of the faith into the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children. Well, we're not supposed to continue to be children, but that's talking about the foolishness of children. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. See, that's foolishness. It's not built on rock. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You're not supposed to remain a boy in foolishness, in childishness. But you are supposed to remain a boy forever in wide-eyed wonder faith. I believe my God. Well, how do you explain this in Scripture, Eric? I mean, have you ever seen this in this generation? doesn't matter if I've seen it in this generation. My God said it. I believe it. Come on. And they say, what an ignorant position. No, no, that's the smartest position. Because I believe my God is smarter than you. That's right. You see, we oftentimes kowtow as men as we mature to this construct of maturity in our culture. And we want to impress our peers with our amazing intellect. And we have a sense of what impresses people. What I'm encouraging you towards is not going to impress your peers. It is going to look foolish at times. And yet, I want you to gladly embrace that foolishness and say, with childlike, wide eyed wonder, I believe God. And they can give all their philosophic arguments, and you say, I believe God. I'm not saying you have no other things to say other than that one line. <laughs> Arthur T. Pearson, when speaking of George Mueller, George Mueller is one of my favorites, you know, in the, as giants of the faith in Christian history. And this is a quick description of one aspect of George Mueller's life, which I think is very fascinating for what we're talking about. God gave George Mueller from the outset a very simple, childlike disposition toward himself. In many things, he was in knowledge and in strength to outgrow childhood and become a man. For it marks immaturity when we err through ignorance and, we over, and are overcome through weakness. So he says, George Mueller grew up. He was a man in every facet, but he was still a child. But in faith and in the filial spirit, he always continued to be a little child. Mr. J. Hudson Taylor, of course, another one of my heroes, so that's why I love this quote. Pack in two of my heroes into one quote. Mr. J. Hudson Taylor well reminds us that while in nature the normal order of growth is from childhood to manhood and so to maturity, listen to this, in grace, the true development is perpetually backward toward the cradle. We must become and continue as little children, not losing but rather gaining childlikeness of spirit. The disciple's maturest manhood is only the perfection of his childhood. Wow. George Mueller was never so really, truly, fully a little child in all his relations to his father as when in, in the 93rd year of his age. I want that. And I see the propensity in me to grow old and crusty, to get smart on God. Okay, I got this figured out, God. I think, now that I'm a man, I'm going to sort of take things into my own hands. I remember when I was getting married, my dad had always bought me clothing. My dad is very conscientious about clothes, and he always was thinking I wasn't dressing the way I needed to. He grew up in the business world, and he always had about seven, eight suits tailored. I didn't like getting measured for suits, because I didn't like it when they'd measure my neck and say, that's one of the smallest necks I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm not going to get any suits anymore. I didn't like that. That really bothered me. Still sort of does. I just don't go and buy <laughs> tailored suits. Just buy me a medium, okay? I don't, I don't need to do all this. Uh, But I remember when I was getting married, my dad was saying, how about I take you out one last time and uh, buy you some clothes? Just be set up for marriage. It was my big moment in life. Because, hey, I'm a man now. It was my big moment. I said, no, Dad, I'm going to buy him this time. I had no money. I I had to buy my own clothes now. See, this is the way we function spiritually, too. Now, I'm not saying there was anything wrong with what I did. Actually, that was probably a good thing for me to do, to begin to just say, look, I need to be responsible for my own life. However, spiritually, we go back to the cradle. I think I need my father more now than I ever did. The older you get in your spiritual life, the more dependent you realize you need to become. So you're constantly going back to the cradle in dependence, in faith, in need for him. You know, one of the the arguments today about how we're supposed to grow up, and it's called like independent intimacy with God. That we grow up, and you know, if I was a father, I wouldn't train my son to be dependent on, upon me at the age of you know, 30. You know, I would say, go out and make your own decisions, son. And so people have said, so that's the way we're supposed to be spiritually. And I would say, no, 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 no. Have you ever seen a more perfect relationship between a father and a son in the Father and Jesus Christ? You know, that Jesus at the age of 30 all the way to 33 did nothing of his own accord. He didn't speak anything but what his father was speaking. He didn't do anything but what his father was doing. He was perfectly dependent upon the father. That is supposed to grow. That's the boy we're talking about. That's the little boy that it's okay to still be. God's going to grow you up to be a man, but you're still going to be that sort of boy. Andrew Murray said, "...the wise and prudent are the men who are conscious and confident of their power of mind and reason to aid them in their pursuit of divine knowledge." The babes are those whose chief work is not the mind and its power, but the heart and its disposition. With the wise and prudent, head knowledge is the first thing. From them, God hides the spiritual meaning of the very thing they think they understand. With the babes, not the head and its knowledge, but the heart and feeling, the sense of humility, love and trust is the first thing. And to them, God reveals in their inner life and experience the very thing they they know they cannot understand. All evangelical Christians believe in regeneration. How few believe that when a man is born of God, a babe-like dependence on God for all teaching and strength ought to be his chief characteristic. The first and chief mark of being a child of God, of being like Jesus Christ, is an absolute dependence upon God for every blessing. And especially for any real knowledge of spiritual things. The first disposition needed for receiving that revelation is a babe-like spirit. It's okay to become a boy. I know we've spent the whole weekend talking about the vision of masculinity and growing up to be men. But to be a great man, you need to be a boy in a certain dimension of your life. And that dimension needs to be guarded. However, the earth will mock it. I'm just preparing you for that if you haven't caught that drift. So now let's begin to put these things together. Boyish faith, the sort of faith needed to bring down the giant. What did David carry with him into the Valley of Elah? He carried with him a boyish faith, the ruddy shepherd boy. Who's the one God's going to choose for such an event? It's the ruddy shepherd boy. That's who God needs. The grown-up, mature adult Saul couldn't pull it off. He was everything the earth would say is needed, and guess what? He couldn't pull it off. But the little guy bearing bread and cheese? You've got to be kidding The eighth son of Jesse? No way. Yes way. That's God's plan. Are you willing to follow God's plan or do you need to be all grown up and mature and look good in the world's eyes? Are you willing to become a ruddy shepherd boy so that you can truly see this world changed? The sort of faith that needed to bring down the giant, the very giant that has all the adults trembling in their boots. So the return of ruddy shepherd boys. Here's our three definitions now. Ruddy, the twice-born, those clothed in blood, the men of life, men with a fiery heart after God, men of the fellowship of the burning heart, shepherd, men built to protect, preserve, and spend their life for that which is under their care. And now boys, men of child wonder, men who simply believe their God to be precisely who he says he is and sure to perform everything he promises to perform. Men who do not need armor and swords to fight against impossible odds, but with childlike faith go out to meet the behemoth with nothing but a satchel full of real, honest-to-goodness faith. Oh, my God can bring down a giant. This is a giant, David. He's a giant. Yeah, have you seen my God? You see, everyone else in the earth is looking at the giant. But what does the ruddy shepherd boy see? The bigness of God. If you're seeing the bigness of God, you know that giants look pretty small. And you aren't intimidated by the giant, the way that everyone else in the earth and realm is. Visiting the Valley of Elah. You know what the Valley of Elah means? It means the place of the great tree. I don't don't know if that can sink in and you can start to let that percolate in. The place of the great tree. Technically, it's the terebinth. There was a terebinth in the middle of the Valley of Elah that the valley was named after. A terebinth is a massive tree. Around the circumference, it could be upwards of 30 Feet around its circumference, massive trees, and they many of them in in the Egyptian, uh, Egyptian in the Jewish culture were deemed to have been there since creation. They were symbols of the ancient of days. They were symbols of God Almighty, strewn throughout the land of Israel. And guess where Goliath decides to boast? Right in the place of the great tree. You know what? There's another place of a great tree. A thousand years later, it's called Calvary. Goliath's doing his boasting. Come down from that cross if you're who you say you are. And the ruddy shepherd boy decapitated the power of sin. So visiting the valley of Elah, the place of the great terebinth, the massive tree, the reading of the ruddy shepherd boy... How is a ruddy shepherd boy prepared for such a day, for that great tree? Well, it's not the easy way. If you want to grow up to be the sort of man that is needed in this generation that will reveal the power and the glory of Jesus Christ, let's take a few cues from the story of how this ruddy shepherd boy was prepared for that great defining moment. So first, he was given the job of shepherding. I could say enough said. How did he handle his job of shepherding? He did it well. He took care of those sheep. You know, as God's gonna grow you up, one of the first things he's probably gonna do to you is send you to the sheep. People may even mock you for what you do. People may snicker at you. You don't look that important. You're not deemed successful in this life, but are you willing to take your job and do it well? The exploring of the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is about 13 miles from Bethlehem. And... One of my thoughts in examining, because I've studied the life of David so many times over, is that David with his sheep would often go to the Valley of Elah. And you could say, how do you know that? Well, that's where the cave of Adullam is. The cave of Adullam is in the crags of those rocks, and a shepherd would often hide in a cave when a storm would come with his sheep. David seems to have explored the Valley of Elah, very well. And so my thought is him sitting in this great tree and watching over his sheep because he gets a high vantage point. And oftentimes they would build shepherd towers to be able to see the predators around. So I picture David being groomed in the Valley of Elah, but not as a king and as a champion, but as a shepherd. That's how men are built. Not in the high lofty position of men's opinions, but in the low positions And he explored this territory that would soon become a central theme for all of Israel's history the Valley of Elah and the Cave of Adullam. The Cave of Adullam is also known as the Rock, and that's where David and his mighties hung out. And that's where David's mighties overheard his plea for a a cup of cool water from the Well of Bethlehem. They ran 13 miles for that cup of cool water. It's an amazing thought. So I picture him exploring the Valley of Elah. He's getting familiar with the territory, staring up at that tree, and he's seeing the power of his God. Wow, God, it's been around since creation. Imagine climbing in the tree and getting familiar with the territory. He knew that territory. Yeah, I know he wasn't invited to the battle, but he knew that territory probably better than any man in that battle. Living in a cave. He learned how to live in a cave long before he ever lived in a cave and when he was being hunted by Saul. He was a shepherd. A shepherd has to learn the more difficult life. A storm breaks out. You can't just go back 13 miles home. You oftentimes are gone for days and days on end. He learned to live on the open ground in the cold, and he learned to live in a cave. He was ready. The slight, well, there's nothing quite like a slight or an oversight to prepare a man. He's not even invited to the king-selecting section. Prophet Samuel comes into town and Jesse is asked for his sons to appear. And guess who's not even asked? David was not even invited. That's the high opinion of his dad and brothers towards him. Well, there's not even a possibility of David. You know what? Every single one of us could mishandle such a slight and we could turn bitter, we could resent, we could begin to separate emotionally. It's like, that's the way you think about me, However, David handled this slight like a man. Though he was a boy, he was an amazingly mature heart. And he had a heart just as God had. And he handled it with a ruddy complexion of soul. He handled it with grace, with mercy. The anointing. What a moment. You want to know how hard this would be? To walk into a room where your brothers are staring at you? Like, no way. And I bet they were thinking that Samuel was a kook. You know why I think that? Because they sent him back to the shepherding fields. Would you send your king back to the fields to shepherd sheep? No, what you do is you bend your knee and you say, you're our king. Their dignity was too much. They were born of this earth and they couldn't handle that. No way. No way. We don't buy it, David. Could you imagine how hard that would have been on David? You know, it's one thing to be anointed off to the side, but instead he has to be anointed in front of his brothers. The ones that don't want him to be anointed. It's not like this was some celebration service. Here's his anointing as king of Israel, and no one's happy. How awkward is that? The return to the sheep. Okay? How you doing as a man? You thought you were finally getting away from the sheep. Hey, I'm a king. No, you're a shepherd. You're a shepherd in this world still. The world doesn't recognize you. You're rightfully king of Israel. And yet no one acknowledges it. No one sees your high calling, do they? No one recognizes what God's doing in your life. The church you're in, they don't see it. They're not elevating you in position. They're not putting you over the, local, the Bible study or they're not giving you the eldership position. Are you willing to serve and serve well though no one around you even acknowledges that God is doing something in your life? This is how a man is formed, climbing the great tree. So this is where I picture him getting more familiar with the great tree. Where does he go? He goes to the great tree. Where do you go in your formation as a man? You need to go to the great tree. And so I picture David in that great tree, and a lion comes up. And that man who is anointed king has to make a choice. I'm more important than these sheep and protecting these sheep. Let them be eaten and devoured by the lion. No, this man is a shepherd. And as a result, he cares about his sheep. And though he is a rightful king of all Israel, he is going to function the way a king ought over those in his care, and no one touches those under his care. And so a lion, though he was risking his life to go after it. And by the way, in Josephus' accounts, Josephus says that Samuel, the prophet, leaned in when they were at the meal at the anointing ceremony and whispered to David and told him. It's it's an incredible litany of things that he said to him. You you guys should look it up. It's really fascinating. But one of the things he said is, when you go to battle, you will not be harmed. And so imagine David knowing this. The words of truth have been spoken to him. He has a job to do on this earth. And his job is to protect these sheep right now and to treat these sheep as if they are the nation of Israel. Israel. And he will do well for these sheep, just like he will do well in the future. You see, if you do not handle the little you've been entrusted now, you will not be ready for the much. David was entrusted little, but he handled that little with excellence. And, of course, we have the bear. These are some amazing stories. The service unto Saul. So Saul is being plagued by demonic spirits. And so, for whatever reason, the only thing that would calm and quell these spirits was the sound of a harp. And so someone happens to know that David, the shepherd boy, plays a harp. I have no idea what the backstory on that one is. And so they invite David to play the harp for the unlawful king of Israel. That's his position. That's his throne. But what does David do? He submits. This is the formation of a man. What we see is one of the most amazing training grounds for how great masculinity forms. Most of us skip right to the Valley of Elah. And we see David decapitate a giant. But why was he ready for that day? Because he was faithful in all the little moments. And God says, play the harp and play it well. Give your best. And what does Saul do? Throws javelins at him. Uh, Excuse me? (laughs) You who are unlawfully on the throne? You see, David submitted and he was humble. And he respected and loved Saul. You know that he actually would have given his life for Saul? That's the sort of reverence and respect he had for this man that was unlawful, who was not living in accordance with the law of God, who had defied the word of God, and who had been rejected by God. The service unto Saul. And then war breaks out. The Philistines are coming to the valley of Elah. You know where Saul sends him? Not to war. He sends him back home to Jesse. And Jesse, where does Jesse send him? Not to war. He sends him to the sheep. Okay, how you feeling right now, man? You have a high calling upon your life, and yet where are you all this way? You've, you've defeated bears and lions with your bare hands. I'm more than a shepherd boy, you could say. But what does David do? He submits. Yes, Father. You know how hard it is to say that, yes, Father, in that moment? It's one thing to say the yes, Father, way back in the beginning when he says, it's your turn, David, to tend the sheep. Yes, Father. Even though you might be thinking, but yes, father, right now is one difficult job. The errand boy. He wasn't going to battle. He was sent to the Valley of Elah, 13 miles, with bread and cheese. There's no dignity in that. He's an errand boy. He needs to receive news of his brothers in the state of the war. Yes, father. He's the answer for Israel. He's been groomed for such a day. But right before he actually steps into that defining moment, he has one more step. Bread and cheese, boy. Bread and cheese. You bring it to your brothers who are the true warriors. Yes, Father. Whoa! Uh, um, The moment. At the place of the great terebinth. Guess who arrived in Israel on the 41st day? The man who was ready, the ruddy shepherd boy. Being proven for the task. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. What's Saul measuring by? He's measuring by earthiness. He says, you're a youth. Ruddy shepherd boy. You know that Saul actually knew who David was? This is sort of a strange thought, but Saul or David had actually helped Saul before this. I don't know if that plays into Saul's decision to actually allow him to, be, to fight, because that's one of the great mystifying things in all of biblical history. Why in the world did Saul allow David, a young boy, To fight on behalf of all of Israel that is a very good question but David said to Saul your servant used to keep his father's sheep and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth and when it arose against me I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it your servant has killed both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing he's defied the armies of the living God Moreover, David said, the the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. Child wonder. We have the return of a ruddy shepherd boy to Israel. What does Israel need? It needs men. They may not look the part. You may not look the part. The world may despise you. Saul may despise you. Your brothers may despise you. Goliath may despise you. But what this world needs is a man, politically incorrect or not, he needs men, but men that are ruddy shepherd boys. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor and put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed them with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not proved them. What an interesting statement. David had proved certain things. He'd proved the faithfulness of God. He'd proved that he can stand up against a lion and a bear and God will do the fighting. He'd proved certain things. Shepherds artillery, he knew it worked. This stuff, the stuff of the earth, he hadn't proved it. He didn't have confidence in that. He had confidence in God. Most men go to battle with confidence in their sword and shield. David went to battle with confidence in the God of battles. So he said... And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not proved them. So David took them off. Put off the old man. Put on the new. The school for ruddy shepherd boys, proving God faithful and being proved by God as faithful. I'm going to have to go through this, unfortunately, rather quick, but you can definitely see the notes on them. The four restraints of the ruddy shepherd boy, the RSB. Restrained to not claim a position that has not yet been given. You know how hard this is? In your life, you need to begin to practice this right now. You may be the most qualified for a job, but if it's not your job, don't just usurp it. Don't just take it. You may be a natural leader in a certain situation, but you will show respect to the leadership that's already established. This is part of the training of a man. If you begin to usurp, yeah, you may rise up in leadership position, but you will not have the blessing of God upon it. You gain position God's way or not at all. As a man, you learn to take the lowest place and not the highest. You search for the sheep, not for the throne. Number two, restrain to serve unnoticed and unappreciated. So you, instead of wanting to be seen in your actions, this needs to be appreciated. You learn to enter into the cocoon of anonymity and allow God to form and to shape your strength as a man. But not in the sight of other men. Not in the sight of other men who could pat you on the back and say, you're doing good, buddy. But literally to restrain yourself to serve unnoticed and even unappreciated. You're not seeking approval. We have an itch for it. But are you willing to go without it to allow God to build you the way a man must be built? So how do you do that? Well, here's some secrets. Serve family, serve unnoticed. Don't blow a trumpet when you're doing your good deed. Serve unnoticed and then don't mention it to anyone. Practice it. Serve unappreciated. Respond with heroic action even when no one notices. How about when you do that good thing and then someone criticizes what you did and said it should have been done better and all you were doing was helping? Have a good attitude in that and say, thank you for your correction. I'd like to do it better. Ooh, good training for a man. Sprint unto every challenge with confidence. Serve the church currently plagued with weakness. Deliver bread and cheese unto your elders. Have you ever thought of going home and literally figuring out ways that you can deliver bread and cheese unto those that run your church? Figure out ways to say, how could I serve them? You know what? Don't look for an opportunity to lead or to stick in some gem of truth. Say, yeah, I went to a conference this weekend, and I think we could overhaul our church. (laughs) But you go back, and you wash feet. You buy a gift or write a note and say, you know what? These are the things I admire about you as a pastor. Whew. Start practicing. Number three, restrain to the simple shepherd's artillery. Faith in the lord of battles. What's your artillery? Learn to use faith as your weaponry, prayer as your weaponry. Don't lean on your earthly strength. Number four, restrain to always take the lowest place and never presume a higher one. No matter where you are, no matter what the situation, you always look for the lowest seat. You always look to take the lowest place. In that situation, the master of that banquet could say, hey, you, come up here. However, that's God's business, not yours. Your business is to seek low. Low place is where you aim. If every man in here aims for low place, we have a very exciting picture of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came and sought the lowest place. The bigger you are in heaven, the lower a place you take down here. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. Jesus didn't take a position. He was given it. He took the lowest place, and God called him up to the highest. I want you to think about that. Jesus took the lowest place, and the Father called him up to the highest. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. You are proven with the little. You are going to be proven in your shepherding duties. You're going to be proven with the lion. You're going to be proven with the bear. Are you ready as a man to take greater responsibility? The four ingredients of the extraordinary story. The place of a famous tree. The preparations of a young boy from Bethlehem, Judah. By the way, this is a parallel. Jesus and David are a parallel. You see, there is a place of a famous tree. The Valley of Elah, Calvary. And the preparations of a young boy from Bethlehem, Judah. Both of them are born in Bethlehem. The boasting of a giant. Five smooth stones. Oh, I'm excited about this next stretch here. Then he, David, took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag and in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. The storyline of the kingdom, the ordinary everyday kid that proves the unlikely hero and changes the course of history. I want you to all consider joining that storyline. This is the storyline of the kingdom of heaven. You're ordinary, you're everyday, perfect. You're not much in the world's eyes, excellent. God loves to take the little and make much out of them. The vision, here's our vision, men. The return of ruddy shepherd boys to Israel who live in the shadow of the great terebinth and remember his almighty power and who reach into the brook and grab five smooth stones instead of just one. You don't understand what that means though yet. I asked Hudson, I said, why do you think David grabbed five stones? He goes, maybe because if he missed, he could throw it again. (laughs) That's good. You know that David was sprinting at the giant? Not a very good plan if you wanted to reach into your satchel and grab one more stone out if you miss. All out sprint. Why did he grab five? His eyes were big with child wonder and faith. I picture him walking out into the valley of Elan, seeing the great terebinth, and Goliath A little dwarf in front of it and he sees it. He reaches down and he grabs five. Why would he grab five? The four additional stones in the shepherd's bag. You know that Gath, Goliath of Gath, Gath was actually in Judah. You know that in Judah there was the legend of five giants. Goliath, who was their lead, their head, he was either their brother, their father. It's a very confusing thing to figure out their relationships, but they're called the brothers of Goliath, or they're called the sons of the giant. There were five giants. When David stepped up to tackle Goliath, he was their head. And David reached in and grabbed five stones one for you, one for you. One for you, one for you, and one for you. That changes the story quite dramatically, doesn't it? There were a legend of five powers, and they were in his backyard. He knew about them. And when he strode in to that camp, he knew that Goliath was just their head, and he was ready for whatever he needed to do. That's amazing. So here's the story. ish benob the sons of the giants, slain by Abishai, the son of Zariah, David's sister. Did David kill the other four giants? No. What happened with the other four stones? I picture an entrustment ceremony. David coming up to his mighties and saying, God, I guess, doesn't want me to be the one using these. I cut off the head. You take down the other giants. You're the mighties, the other giants. You see, the head has been decapitated. And then Jesus says, But I have four more stones. Hey, church, you know what David's mighties did? They slew the brothers of Goliath, lions and bears. They did the same work as their king. What are we called to do? We've been given the stones ishbi Banab, the sons of the giant, slain by Abishai, the son of Zariah, David's sister. He was one of David's mighties. Saf, the sons of the giant, slain by Sibke, the Hushtite, one of David's captains. Lami, the brother of Goliath, slain by Elhanan, a Bethlehemite, one of David's captains. The six-fingered giant. Could you imagine? There's a guy in the Bible named the six-fingered giant. We don't know his name, but isn't that cool? He's the six-fingered giant of the sons of the giant, slain by Jonathan, the son of Shammah, who was one of David's six most mighties. He says, I got five. I only needed to use one. There's still four. Church of Jesus Christ. Now go and do it. Be the men that I've, I've commissioned you to be. We've lost our ruddy shepherd boys, but it's high time we return. We return to the Valley of Elah And we gather up those four stones that we need. And we go a-fighting. But what is needed is ruddy, shepherd boys. Ones that have a big idea of who their God is. Not a small one. Sharing in the ignominy. That's the shame. The scandal. Our purposeful maneuver to strip off our dignity and wear a leathern girdle. Trade out our filet mignon for locust and wild honey. And throw out the gel and let our hair go frizzy. When we say we're willing to be the ruddy shepherd boys, that's what we're saying. We're choosing the harder life. We're choosing the harder way. We're choosing a cave instead of a palace. We're choosing a leather girdle instead of the phylacteries. And we say, thank you Jesus for such a privilege. Sharing in the ignominy that we might share in his glory. You see, yeah, you share in the shame now, but you get to share in his kingdom later. David's mighty shared in his ignominy. And guess what? When he came into his kingdom, They shared in all the grandeur of it. Give up the hip, the cool, the politically correct, and accept the fact that God's ruddy shepherd boys, the ones that truly changed the world, are the most hated men in this red earth. Accept it. It's okay to swallow it. That's just the way it is, and stop trying to change that fact. Stop trying to make the church cool. The church is not meant to be cool. Cool. It's meant to be a picture of Jesus Christ, and never in all of earth's history has he been deemed cool. So let's stop trying to spritz up and put gel on his hair and fix the calic and the, and the buck teeth that Jesus has to the world's eyes. To us, he's the most beautiful. To us, he's the most grand. But they can't see it. They have earthen lenses. They have glasses of Adam on. They have a veil that hangs over their face, and they can't behold what we see. But it's our job to live in accordance with what we see. We see his beauty. We see his majesty. We see his glory. Now let's go. Let's go and live as ruddy shepherd boys that flow from the strength of that great tree, the cross. That's where we find our strength. That's where we find everything we need. We have been given Phineas's javelin. We've been given the, oh, what's it called? The donkey's jawbone of Samson. We've been given the four stones of David. We've been given the artillery that we need for life and godliness. Oh, the five ingredients of the extraordinary story. The place of the famous tree. The preparations of a young boy from Bethlehem, Judah. The boasting of a giant. Five smooth stones and an all-out sprint. Who in their right mind steps in front of a giant that has struck terror in all a nation for 40 days, grabs up, stones, has no armor, no shield, no sword, and then sprints. Who does that? A ruddy shepherd boy. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David that David hasted. That word hasted means to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. And he ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. He sprints, reaches into his bag, grabs that rock. While he's sprinting, he has no second chance. If he misses, Goliath goes, go, oh, whoop. Instead, he strikes him dead on. Ruddy shepherd boy. I want to be like David. But David was despised. I want to be like David. I want to be like Jesus, but Jesus was hated. He was a worm and no man. I want to be like Jesus. That's what I esteem. Is that what you esteem? The church of Jesus Christ has to esteem the masculinity of Jesus if it's gonna return to its strength. We can't esteem the masculinity of this world. We must trade out the red earthen form of hip and cool for the heart red, blood red life of Jesus. Jesus.
0: Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.